really wanted to bring what I, a little, the feeling I have after I, I, I'm in the same room as my own Mark to Octus Garden. And I'm really glad that you're all here. And, and, and Mark's been studying and teaching for a long, long, long time, 40 years. And he combines a lot of, as you'll see, a lot of interdisciplinary elements that make his teaching of what can be really complicated, bringing ideas, very clear and very um, relevant. I guess that's the word I want to use. Very relevant to my life. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'll try. <laughs> With that billing, my goodness. Let's uh, before I before I uh, speak. Uh, let's start uh, from the uh, from the Buddhist tradition with an aspiration, uh, which is. Uh, very profound, and we normally start all um, a Dharma talks uh, by stating the, the highest aspiration possible. So if you'd like, you can follow with me. There's a beautiful um, uh, motivation uh, called uh, Motivation for Full Liberation for All Beings. Uh, and uh, I'll just say it from the uh, Adrikon Kagyu tradition. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles in my path of liberation and dissonance, may they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I will quickly establish in the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. Thus, until I achieve enlightenment, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. Until death, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. From now until this time tomorrow, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. And then for all, all, all beings, all sentient beings, we wish the, what's called the four immeasurables, the four um, godlike uh, qualities, uh, which means way beyond. And may all uh, mother sentient beings, boundless as a sky, have happiness and the cause of happiness. May they be liberated from suffering and the cause of suffering May they never be separated from happiness, which is free from sorrow. May they rest in equanimity, uh, free from attachment and aversion. So with that motivation, uh, we'll begin something. So I've, um, I've not uh, purposely, which, which I rarely do this, but I mean I rarely ever prepare. But uh, I will ramble a little bit, but that depends on um, looking around and seeing your, your interests and your questions. Um, the, the topic today is what is the Buddhist path? And uh, also other questions is um, thing, things like, which is on a lot of people's minds, how does one address uh, meditation, the path of liberation uh, with a, uh, a worldly life, with a busy life? This is on a lot of people's minds today. And such things as relationship to the nervous system, to spiritual awakening, and uh, all, all kinds of other questions. But I think the first place to start is uh, what's on people's minds. I think that's what we need to start with. What's what's with? And if I look around the room, I can go anywhere to any kind of talk. Is is all of you, for the most part, 
are, are coming for one reason. I, I'm going to propose this. It may not be true. I'll propose it. Is uh, most people today, when I talk to them, in some way they're looking to be happier. Is that, is that right? Happier than they are. And uh, some of you, not anybody in the room, but, but some of you know people, distantly, somewhere out there, that actually have a lot of mental turmoil uh, in their lives. Is that correct? Not, not any of you, but just, just <laughs> no, 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 other people. And, and some people uh, go through a lot of physical suffering in their life. Is that right? Disease, illness, physical suffering? So we have people in society that have um, a mental turmoil, um, a physical turmoil, and uh, today you, people use the word a lot. Remember, it's a word. Anxiety, depression, uh, discomfort of some type, yes? Is that correct? And the numbers are very high, by the way. I think you know that. I don't, I'm not going to go into stats, but the numbers are high. Uh, but remember, too, uh, this, what we're going through, we live in an amazing society. It's an extraordinarily good society. We've never, no people in the world have had it so good. Just about free health care, education, it's, it's, it's truly amazing. And, and when I come out of retreat, I, I do feel like a hermit, especially when I come to Toronto, I go, oh my God. It's never, ever been so good on the planet. Actually, even all over the planet. No matter the wars we have, it's an extraordinary time. And yet, it's an extraordinary time with all kinds of abundant riches. And it's amazing, even on Galliano, which has a thousand people and it's all full of trees and it's, it's on the west coast, lotus land. The number of people that are going through uh, emotional turmoil, going through incredible conflict in their lives, and absolutely bewildered what they should do, where they should go, what they should do for work, what they're going to become, difficulties in relationships, difficulties at work, Difficulties being at home, difficulties being in the forest, difficulties shopping, trying to get a new app for shopping. I just got a, an ad for apps for shopping, right? Faster, better, quicker. Things that you want and things especially that you don't want. That was, it was built that way. First of all, it was built as the things that you don't want, but now you can get them faster. Extraordinary. And yet, with all this abundance and with all this richness, with all this income, I don't care who you are in the room, even if you have no money, you're wealthier than uh, almost anybody I saw when I was in Africa recently. It's an amazing time. And yet, the, the uh, suffering and the cyclic uh, suffering, uh, which I wouldn't really use the word, so if, you, if I use the word suffering, people go, because it's very Buddhist, right? You go, suffering? Actually, it's really good here. But actually, it's a cyclic um, uh, time, which has always been there. By the way, this, nothing's changed. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years. Is the need that when there's discomfort and there's uh, some mental, physical discomfort, what's the first thing we do? We alter it. Isn't that right? We, we try to get out of it. We try to shift it. Is that, is that correct? And if you were to actually look at what we do all day, is we shift it thousands of times a day. And if we did very, very deep meditation, we would find... Don't believe me, by the way. Do not believe me. Put it to test. Okay? That's a very ancient Buddhist tradition. 
don't believe me just because I'm sitting here with a, a robe and I had an introduction of you know, 40 years of studying. Don't believe me. You put it to the test. But if you put it to the test, you may find that in fact this shifting away from uncomfortability, just that, is happening many times a second, all through the day, all through the night. So no matter how happy we get, it's a temporary movement away from discomfort. No matter how uncomfortable we get, we're still going to want to move away into what? A more peaceful, happy place, is correct? And now, and nothing's changed. It's been going on for thousands and thousands of years on humans. People reported this for thousands of years. But today we can do something fantastic. We have the ability today to change the channel, 500 channels, search the internet, hit the buttons, internally, chemically, externally, chemically. We can walk down Queen Street, or is this, is this Harvard? College. College, okay, it's college. We can walk down and every single little thing can grab our attention and give us a boost, or not. We're down or up, we're down or up, down or up. And we can change the channel, people, Places, coffee, food, sleep, movies, Netflix, doesn't matter what, within seconds. And it's cheap. It's fast, it's cheap. So I'm not in any way, by the way, I'm not actually bashing society. We have an amazing society. But the fundamental point is, it's, Buddhism is normally these days sold as a teaching to be happy. It's not true. Number one, not true. Thing is, no matter how happy we get, it doesn't solve a thing. I think maybe some of you are going to realize that. Uh, is no matter how happy we get, something can come along and knock you out of happiness. Is that correct? You could have a wonderful yoga session, and you get a, you get an email or you get a cell phone call or something your partner says, or something at work, and it comes crashing down. Have you, have you found that? Is this the case? And you know what? This happened to the Buddha, too. So the historic Buddha found the same thing. No matter how good he became at meditation, no matter, and he had the best teachers, and he was so accomplished, that his last teacher, who was a great meditation master, he was already teaching his teacher students how to get to a place of calm and clarity that even his teacher couldn't teach. Okay? It's a technical stage called neither perception or non-perception. And, and his teacher couldn't reach it, but he did. So he had reached the pinnacle in the, in the uh, pre-Buddhist tradition of meditation stages he had reached the pinnacle and still wasn't satisfied. because I'm going to have to keep meditating. So to stay happy, one has to do something. And this is the dilemma that we have. I'm not in any way bashing yoga. I love yoga. And I'm not going to bash meditation. But you see, what's going to happen, where the, the dissatisfaction comes, is that no matter what we do, it doesn't matter, Buddhism, meditation, doesn't matter. The same fundamental thing is there, is that no matter how hard we try to keep the happiness and search around for a technique, 
of happiness, just like the Buddha 2,500 years ago. It is not a sustaining equanimity of a natural state that requires no effort. See? So, for me to be happy, traditionally, I need to adopt some, some state. I need to take on a pose. Something. They come and they go. <laughs> so you, you see, so so no matter what we do, we're even if we're incredibly calm, we're going to have to still adjust the calm. Now it turns out in the Buddhist tradition, which by the way came from Patanjali, the yoga system came from Patanjali Yoga, so in the Buddhist tradition there is actually studying of texts. I, I did this as a teenager, so don't please ask me to quote things. It's been that long. But in the Patanjali tradition, and that came through into the Buddhist India, Indian tradition, is there's nine stages of calm. So in the tradition of jhana and samadhi, one progresses through from a uh, meditative state where within, within 20, in 21 breaths, one can count 21 in and out breaths, and in that 21 in and out breaths, there's not one single distraction. The mind stays absolutely serenely stable in the experience of the pure sensation, right? That's number one. There's nine stages. The final stage of, of, of the practice of samadhi, if you wish, or uh, you could debate what that is, of the calm, clear mind uh, is no effort at all to have a thought-free, clear, blissful, radiant mind. Not none. There's not even any effort to sustain or to do any correction, and that's called the ninth stage. That ninth stage, uh, there are people today still who practice in, in retreats, professional retreat centers, uh, who are tested and, and see if they can do that at least for 24 hours but some are able and have been able historically, as the Buddha could, for seven days straight, night and day. Isn't that extraordinary? And some of you could act, some of you in the room, naturally, have a bent that way, at which you could be trained in the same way. So imagine seven days, no, really true. Seven days, unmoving, day and night, no sleeping, just resting in this um, uh, clear, thought-free mind. It's not liberation. But then some of you aren't here for liberation anyways. You're not, you don't want that. But you would like to be happy. So people are coming to yoga, they're coming to dharma classes, all kinds of different things. Some people come, and initially they just want to be a bit happier. They may have anxiety, they may have an illness, uh, a broken foot. One person came to a dharma talk, and after an entire week she says, you know, I wasn't here for these teachings. It's great what you said. It's wonderful. But when you talked about these, when you showed us some movements, the pain, my sciatica went away. I'm here because I want to get rid of my sciatica. And whatever you did temporarily got rid of my sciatica. So can you show me that again and teach me how to get it? And I said, well, that's actually for an osteopath. Or... But no, 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 please. So I, I did took the time. She said, wow, it's gone. How did you do that? I sent her on to a, a professional. She wasn't there to hear teachings of liberation. 
She was just there. That's, that's fine. So all good. In the room right now, there's people, you don't want to hear what I'm going to say. I warned Christina this. I tried to frighten her up. No, they, people will not going to want to hear this. So the entire Buddhist path, as is the yoga path, is all the way from feeling a bit better, something that, that makes you feel stretched out and you have some endorphins and the receptors for a THC, you know THC? Tetrahydrocannabinol, you know, dope. We, we, naturally have, we naturally have those in our brains. And oxytocin, we sit in the room and you feel good. You have lovely, we can measure it in your blood, lovely streaming of oxytocin. Yeah, and you feel. And with a little bit of THC, because we naturally have these uh, chemicals in our body. You know, we don't have to do this. But it's true. We can go running, we can do exercises, stretches, and all of a sudden those receptors are being matched with these molecules. We go, it's good. It feels good. What happens afterwards? So some people are going to, uh, because they can take uh, the time, and very, we're very busy today, aren't we very busy? It's true. It's very busy. We can take short periods of time now, like little apps, and we can modulate our nervous system. We can, I, I came up with this term, I don't know if it's mainstream, but years ago when I was uh, more involved in neurophysiology, I called this uh, self-neuromodulation. Is that for a technical term? Because, you know, it's technical, so we got science, we have to come up with technical terms. But, but we do this all day long, whether we're practicing yoga, whether we're meditating, we're actually always neuromodulating our nervous system because we have the chemicals to do that. Fantasy, all, all discursive dialogue is neuromodulation. All fantasy is neuromodulation. Every exercise, all food, this is now mainstream. It took a long time, but it's now mainstream. All food is neurohormonal. We never eat food. We actually regulate our nervous system, our hormonal system, through food. That's the fact. That's, that's what food is. When we talk to each other, we're regulating our nervous systems. If you don't like this, you say, don't go there. I'm leaving. Right? You get up and you leave. All day long, we train in neuromodulation. All day long, we train, no matter what we do. If we go to coffee, we have coffee in the morning, we're training what? Coffee. Right? If we train in a certain peer group, we're training in that peer group. We're always training in something. Okay? So the question is, in life, what are we training in? So I was asked to speak on what's beyond mindfulness. That's the, that's the title. But really the question is, for me, is, is are you, why do people come to me, to see me, and not just see me, to come to the, the, the teaching of Dharma, is are you satisfied? And some people, by uh, modulating their, themselves through everything, meditation, uh, yoga, qigong, Feldenkrais, Coffee, tea, uh, going to a restaurant, uh, making love, watching television, it doesn't matter what it is, it is modulating, but the, the question is people also get very tired and say, what, what else is there? So the teaching of, of, of Buddhism in its very pure form, 
teaching of Buddha Dharma, is a teaching of a freedom that comes not through branding, not through concept, not because one's a Buddhist, but because one has discovered the innate, free, clear, natural freedom inherent in all of us. That's it. But that's it, and it sounds simple, but it's so vast that I could be here for the rest of the year speaking about it. Every day, speaking about the range and the vastness and the qualities of that freedom of the mind. So this is a very different view than many people hold, even among Buddhists, is this freedom that we talk about is not a Buddhist freedom, it's not a Hindu freedom, it's not a Sufi freedom, it is something, and this is classic teaching of Buddha Dharma, if you want it's Pajriyana, is inherent in every single creature you Europeans, even Europeans. <laughs> East Asians, it doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter if the person's mad, crack, crazy. It doesn't matter if they're intelligent. It doesn't matter if they're not intelligent. Inherent in consciousness is a core, is a stream of absolutely clear, compassionate, free mind that requires no yoga. Right now I'm teaching you yoga. I'm teaching you Buddhist yoga. This is the Buddhist yoga. It requires no posture. It requires no trying to control the mind. It doesn't require that the mind is still or active. It doesn't matter whether you're running or cooking. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter that you're down in Yorkville buying things. It doesn't matter if you're not buying things. It simply doesn't matter. And that sounds so simple, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound simple? The good news and the bad news is that like any good craft, any great art, it requires training, study, training, discipline, ethics, all kinds of things that take time to come to a place where it's effortless. And that really isn't culturally very appropriate today. It really isn't. So, uh, I got asked once in a class like this, a public class in Vancouver, a person put their hand up who's a surgeon. Very bright, lovely man. He said to me out of frustration in the class, isn't there a faster way? A surgeon, right? Isn't there a faster way? I said, this is the fast path. It's called in Buddhism the fast direct path. I'm teaching it. <laughs> and the fastest... Um, the fastest that anyone's ever attained to full freedom is three years. But isn't there a faster way because we're smart, we're modern, we're educated, we're with it? No. <laughs> and I believe at that time I was trying to be very slow and very polite and said something like, how long did it, train, did it take you to train as a surgeon? And you're asking that the unfoldment of the human mind of which neurologists have stated is the most complex known entity in the universe, the human brain. Study it, you'll see. But you know, probably an astrophysicist would go, no, uh, 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 it's not, we got something else. Yeah. 
Because what we've got is got 10 to the 50 universes. That blows the number of neural connections that are more than ever, any star in the entire known universe blows it out of the sky. But you see what I'm getting at. The development of a human being into a compassionate, free, open gift of the universe, like a, like a great musical instrument, it's like, it's, like the viol, it's like the cello taken to the highest level. We're a musical instrument. We're an incredibly complex, beautiful instrument that can be tuned and played to a level that we're not even taught. We're just not taught this. But it's actually mainstream. You know, this is mainstream in Europe until recently, until the Industrial Revolution. This idea of perfecting the human spirit was mainstream. In India and all through Southeast Asia, the perfecting of the human spirit as the thing that we do in life, the highest thing that we do in life, the greatest honor of life, is, was completely mainstream until recently. This is what you did. Hmm? But it takes training. And it's a dirty word, sorry. It's a dirty word. I love training. I love learning. I love training. And it's said in Buddhist, I'll quote you directly, in many, many Buddhist texts, real transcendent joy comes out of discipline. Wow. That's not culturally appropriate. You see what I'm saying? So it's not uh, uh, just a love of learning. It's not just a love of discipline. It's training in what? We all train. The question is, what do we train in? So from the pinnacle of the Buddhist tradition, the training, the, the sole reason for training, of which there's many stages, right? which can be just, I feel better. You know, there's students that study with me, and they say, I feel better. I go, great. I do. Give it a day. <laughs> give, it a, give it a month. <laughs> Something happened. How do you feel now? But I was really feeling great. Okay. So then they say, is there something else I can do? Good, okay. So the teaching of Buddha Dharma is none other than the, uh, the actual cessation vanquishing of the emotional afflictions. Not emotion, by the way emotional afflictions, and it's measurable. Greed, hatred, delusion, pride, jealousy. Gone. That doesn't mean unemotional. Because in its place comes what? Generosity, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, profound wisdom into the nature of, of mind, of experience. Non-rage, non-hatred, and so on. But all the reflections of that the transformations of that are a great gift, not just for ourselves, but for other people. So this is a path where it's not about us, it's about what can we do, what could we become for countless beings that are connected to us, that live in us, around us. We affect everybody. So it's not culturally appropriate anymore. I mean, I, I, I hear this, I see this, this idea of perfecting, this idea of of completion. To me, this is a very beautiful thing. Right? So the word that's used is Buddha nature, which the word Buddha in, in Sanskrit means awake. So to me, it's a question of how awake can we become? Awake to what? Awake to what? 
This is called yoga, by the way. The process of becoming awake, fully awake, fully compassionate, fully awake, is yoga. And I have a certain belief, which is a bit strange, is that if you aim really high, at least you'll go somewhere. I mean this. Just think of this. If you aim really low, and you say, you know, I don't want to work for full Buddhahood, because I don't even believe it's possible. You know, some people go, come on, this is just story making. But if you reach for a little bit and say, you know, I'd like to study with you, but could I do 10%? You know, it's like going to, like, you know, I want to become a doctor. You say, well, could I do, like, I'd like to do 10%. I always get concerned. Do you ever get concerned about someone who's taken medical exams and they've gotten 75%? You go, <laughs> <laughs> or a pilot who passed you know they passed their 747 license, licensing and you go what didn't they pass you know emergency control maneuvers they didn't pass but they passed the rest Yes. so same in, in the tradition of Buddha Dharma you may as well aim for the highest because it picks you up far it draws you up if you aim low that's where you stay. It's like going to a music teacher and saying, I'd like to learn to play the clarinet, but I want to play in a mediocre way. <laughs> and I, I want to find a mediocre teacher. Yeah. So we all come to the teachings of yoga, come to the teachings of dharma, come, uh, for different reasons. And what happens is you hope that uh, over time it goes from, I just want to feel a bit better, I'd like to feel a little bit less anxious, I have some pains, I'd like to work those out, and, and over time one hopes that the avenues of seeing more freedom, more possibilities, open up gradually. Hmm? Open up gradually. A lot of what is taught in the tradition of Buddha, even in yoga by the way, if you, to look, if you were to look and study uh, the, the suttas of, of Patanjali and many of the teachings in yoga, uh, I think for many Western gods, not even possible. I've had people say to me who are very famous psychotherapists say, listen, cut the crap out. I'm a Buddhist, but greed, the, the vanquishing of greed, hatred, delusion, pride is not even possible. So let's, let's cut that crap out. It's just mythological. Go, no, actually, that's the heart of all Dharma. Cut that out, you have no Dharma. Cut that out, you have no Buddhism. You actually don't have any Buddhist meditation. They don't even believe it. There's all kinds of Buddhists that do not believe in liberation. They don't. So today we're seeing a secular movement of, of Buddhism, which is a Buddhism a stripped of all religious connotations, but actually the, the guts has come in it. This is the, the question of what's beyond mindfulness. There never was on meditation mindfulness. Never, ever, ever in the tradition. 2,500 years. I'm a classic teacher. Never has there ever been a mindfulness meditation. Ever. This is a recent invention. I know. I did my research in this as my master's degree, and I was in the forefront of that. I'm partly guilty. I'm guilty because uh, I too, many, many years ago in my 20s and 30s, was, were experimenting. How can we bring the Dharma to many, many Westerners that don't believe in the central tenets of it? 
in a scientific way, in a modern way. This is the meditation, my first meditation my teacher ever gave me as a teenager, my root teacher. What are you going to do? How are you going to teach Westerners? It's the first, that was my first interview. Boom. All I want to do is become, you know, a Tibetan yogi. It's not easy. What are you going to do with Westerners? How are you going to teach Westerners? It's been a, been a concern of my life, my entire life. And I found over 40 years, I've gone back and forth, as my root teacher, Nam Jirumbashe, did back and forth, as a monk, he went back and forth, is how are we going to bring these extraordinary teachings of, now listen to the numbers, hundreds of thousands of highly realized, let's take the word liberation out, let's take the word enlightenment out, because for a lot of people, they go, ah, liberation. You got liberation, this, you got liberated corporations, you got liberated meetings, you've got liber we have branding, so we, we can't even use the same words. But just think about people who've devoted 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of their life to uncovering what is natural freedom. Imagine, right? Hundreds of thousands of beings. You know that in the time of, let's see, Pagma Drupa, 1100, 60,000 Tibetans going into retreat, mums and dads, all kinds of people going into long-term retreats. Can you imagine? They was called the golden years of thousands of people just getting up and being supported by society to go into years and years and years of retreats and hear Dharma. Amazing. Society just getting up and going. So Miller Rape would walk into a town nude because he lost all his clothes. Literally. And sing beautiful songs of liberation. Guess what happened? People like yourselves would simply walk out of town with them and go, I want that. Life was hard. This guy's got something that we don't have. He's nude. He has a strip of clothing. He's asking for a, a sack of barley to make it through the winter up in the caves in the Himalayas. He was. He was a great yogi. Right? Inner heat yogi means he could actually stay in, uh, in uh, far below zero weather. Um, and, and he was able to actually, um, one, of, one of the times, uh, stay in a three-month snowstorm without food. Incredible degree of samadhi. But his songs of liberation, songs of freedom, actually brought young men and women living in villages right out, living in the snows. Why? That level of freedom is way beyond something. So, so uh, this isn't really about being happy. It's more, way more. And I think you're going to find that. We're living right now in the most extraordinary time, but it is a culture of happiness. Every single moment, something's being said to us. That's why I like coming into cities. It's great. Every single fraction of a second is another message on the street, on one of these devices, from our peers. Here's how to be happy. Isn't that correct? Here's how to be happy. And the marketing for this yoga system, that yoga system, this Buddha medit this teacher, this meditation teacher, this lama, this book. How many times has someone said, you've got to read this book? I get that. Someone coming along after goes, you've got to read this book. You've got to watch this podcast. You've got to watch this TED Talk. And you're going, which one? Did you ever get that? Which one? Do I have time to watch, to read every Dharma book, every spiritual book? They're all saying the same thing. 
every spiritual book, every DVD, every podcast, and visit every Tibetan, Hindu, uh, spiritual teacher and go, so, so what's the secret? What's the secret? You'll burn yourself out. Not only are people burnt out from all kinds of manner of things today, yes? But that tradition of jumping around spirit, trying to find the truth, the essence, the secret cheese the mouse finds you, uh, it, it can burn people out. So you're probably waiting for me to give you the answer. <laughs> I already told you the answer. So the odd thing is, and I tell people this honestly, I just give them the goods and they walk away and never see them again. is to find an effortlessness beyond suffering and beyond happiness. That's the teaching of Dharma. I'm not kidding. Neither clinging to happiness nor clinging to non-happiness. Neither clinging to having to have something nor not having something. Clinging to relationships or no relationships. Clinging to Bentleys or no Bentleys. <laughs> clinging to having to do this or having not to do this. A true peacefulness that goes beyond any even concept of peacefulness takes a lot of training. And my uh, wish for you uh, is to give you a feeling that actually, in my view, and has been there for a very long time, is I can't think of anything more joyous and beautiful than the training of full liberation because it's for other beings. Our difficulty is when we get focused on ourselves. So when we come to the teaching of yoga, we come to the teaching of dharma, most beings, bless their heart because it's just a fact of life, are trying to do something for themselves. How is it that I can stop suffering? Why did I put my foot in my mouth yesterday with my partner? Why do I repeatedly cause myself suffering? Why do I feel these pains? Give me the answer. Oh, go gluten-free. That'll do it. <laughs> Have juices. Be become a juicer. That will do it. Don't eat any red, red meat. No, no, eat lots of red meat. Bulk up on carbohydrates. No, don't bulk up on carbohydrates. Eat lots of greens. No, not so many greens. How many messages have you had about how to be healthy? Do you really believe that health, being perfectly healthy, is actually equates with freedom? I'll tell you it doesn't. My beloved root teacher was sick from the first time I ever traveled with him. We were, we were by ourselves, he was teaching 100 people in Norway, in a little cabin one night when he said, uh, Mark, can you come in? I was 20 years old. Mark, can you come in? I think I've got a little bit of a difficulty happening. What is it, sir? Came in his room. He says, I think a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So I felt his pulse. Yeah, what's your symptom, sir? Yeah. Yep, kind of sounds like a heart attack. Let me go find a doctor. Yeah, they're from the age of 45. And yet I never met a man who was so awake. I never met a human being who was so compassionate. I never met a man who was so surgically loving. He was tough. He was tough teacher. Loving, tough. 
I never met a person who actually was always awake in a sense that was extraordinary. No matter what the illness, no matter what anything. That was a great teaching. The very fact that one has a teacher who actually has heart problems. Genetic. Right? Wasn't stressed. Genetic. Didn't eat great food, but it was genetic. He loved food. He had other, other difficulties. And he had TV from, left over from England, and he had difficulties that left over from meditating in the Far East, and had to live with that for the rest of us. All of us have these things. There's not one person that comes through this world unscathed except for my grandmother. <laughs> I always use this as my example. Jewish grandmother from the old country lived till 99. When she was 92, she had no illnesses in her life. And she went to her doctor at 92 because she was still trying to play 18 holes of golf. And she complained to her doctor and said, my ankle's sore. He said, your ankle's sore. You're 92. My ankle's sore and it's interfering with my golf game. What can you do? He kicked her out of the office and said, oh, get out of here. So she gets what her solution was. Nine holes of golf at 92. I always use this as my role model for, okay. So she lives till 99. We don't know why. She, she just practiced dying every year. She would just fall. She would just do this. Watch. End up in the hospital, she'd come out. I love my grandmother. She's great. But she wasn't a saint, okay? She wasn't. She wasn't a saint. She wasn't a bad person. She wasn't a saint. She never practiced. But her genetics were such. You ever know those people? It didn't matter what she ate didn't matter what she did, she lived till 99. Others, I have people, students and friends and colleagues, in their 20s, they're dying. 35 years old, two children, two lovely children, a little bit of a heart, a little bit of a cough. <coughs> Dear friend of mine, three weeks later, dead of cancer. Just like that. Happy, practicing yoga, practicing meditation, dead. This idea that uh, health, physical health, is an equivalent of attainment, an equivalent of attainment. Some of us, I'm gonna, some of us just, no matter what we do, are not going to be perfectly healthy. Even great yogis, great masters, some of my teachers have, have, been, have had illnesses, but they've been, they've been rated by other masters as, as incredible meditators. And yet genetic propensity for illness. Does it make sense? And yet the happiest, loving, compassionate gifts to the universe. Why? Awake. The teaching of liberation is not about trying to maintain a perfect health. We should maintain our bodies. It's our cathedral. It's our temple. It's where we're going to do the work. So we should take care of our bodies. What you're doing is great. Please, practice yoga. It's great. Remind me. <laughs> As my dear partner in Guatemala said recently in a, in a, uh, in a, um, a Skype last night, yoga. To me. Go practice yoga. It's good. Why? We, we need to maintain our bodies. It's good. It's really important. But our bodies maintaining them and doing that, that, that whole number is not going to lead to our freedom. But yet we need 
to be flexible. We need to get our nervous system flexible. We need to get our lymph moving. We need to actually have the support of a relatively happy brain. Does that make sense? Which means we're going to have to have a really healthy, happy belly because they're completely connected. And we're going to find we're going to have to open up everything else to get that energy flowing or we won't have the support to wake up. It won't happen. It's, dra it's too draggy, too difficult. So you're all training. You all practice yoga? Yes? You're all training. You're training. And yoga, by the way, is a term that we use all the way to the highest level of, of contemplations that have no form. There's not, you're t you know, at the highest level of the yoga that one gets if, one, if one's teacher gives this to you, very high level, no more form, no more meditation, drop it all. That's called ati yoga. Nothing left. What's left? The nature of all experience. That doesn't mean the nature of presence. All experience, whatever it is, is the internal, inner, essential nature resting and being in that state continuously. Which means you're going to have to drop everything because everything is a contrivance that disturbs that. Any posturing of mind or body disturbs that. The funny thing is, the weird thing is, we have to train in all these contrivances to get to where we can drop the contrivances. In the same way that a musician, and I've met some of these, anybody here a musician? Confess. Confess up. Yeah, okay. What do you, what do you play? Great. Imagine if you can get to the place where you train, where someone can say, just do it spontaneously. Just, just play spontaneously. And not only you, but everybody else is in wonder. Every note's perfect. And it is literally a gift to mankind or, and womankind. Yeah? There are people that can play that. But they've trained for a long time to show an absolute effortlessness and spontaneity, which is a mastery of the nature of the instrument and the mastery of the nature of their own being. Yeah? But look at the hours required to do that. So I'm saying to people, don't be scared of training. <coughs> You're training anyways. We're all training. Isn't that right? We train. That's all we do all day. I, I'd go on deeper in that, but we've only got <coughs> two hours. We're training all day. The question is, in what? We may as well uh, enjoy the training. It's lovely. The joy of perfecting is a beautiful thing. You'll say, oh, it's not possible perfection. Maybe not. But it is a beautiful gift to, to oneself and other beings when we, we develop a really fine uh, craft or skill. Isn't that right? It's beautiful. <coughs> There is this idea that somehow it's very difficult to do this in the modern life. We need to become a monk or a nun and go into um, uh, maybe 20 years of retreats. But actually, we have all day to practice. 
by the way, I do a lot of retreats, and I take people into a lot of retreats. And uh, it is a, a very fast way of, of um, upping the speed of liberation. But if you don't marry it with daily life, and you go, well, when I go into retreat, I'm going to become liberated, but in daily life, I, I, I'm just going to live this, uh, this, this state. Uh, this, is, this is missing the point. We need to learn to actually train in a beautiful way, in a loving, beautiful way, train all day long, no matter what we're doing. Otherwise, we, we, we ruin even the retreat possibilities. We have no power when we come into retreats. So imagine practicing yoga all day long, no matter whether you're at work, whether you're having a coffee, it doesn't matter, but without any obvious posture. We call that the secret hidden yogi, yoga. Walking down the street, buying shoes, buying a new dress, um, getting one's nails done, doesn't matter. We're actually practicing a yoga. A yoga of what? A yoga of completion of an awake mind. Never stops. Day and night. Day and night practice. So in the, in the, in the teaching of, of, of Buddha Dharma, also the teaching of the Hindu paths of, of, of freedom, is the first place we have to start is with the most obvious thing we have, the gross thing we have. Not gross negatively, gross obviously, is the body. Hmm? We have to start there. We have to get to know what this body feels like. We have to get to have it um, secreting and moving well and so on. So we have a basis of loving kindness and we feel good about ourselves. If we don't, we don't feel good. So what do we do? All the paths do the same thing, by the way. We get you to feel really happy and actually blissed out. So as my dear beloved teacher, Namaz Rinpoche, said, actually, we, all of you need to feel really blissful. This is important. You need to find out what it's like to feel really good, naturally, just really good. And then we have to take you off the addiction. Because the most addictive thing, this is traditionally in all the texts, to the path of liberation, the greatest addiction is not suffering. It's happiness. And we've never had a society like this ever on the planet that can give it in every little tweak and cheat. Now, when you start to practice yogas and meditation, it's going to be the same thing. And I tell you, I have no greater difficulty in teaching meditation and the spiritual life than taking people off the addiction to bliss. And yet, I have to teach it. Isn't that interesting? We have to learn to really feel good about ourselves at a deep physiological level so we have a comfort in life that allows us to actually go forward into something else. Is this making sense? I actually have to give you the good object, the really, in, 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 in sort of therapeutic terms, the really good loving object, which is you and the world, not just you, the world. At ease in the world, at ease in oneself, you like yourself, you like your physiology. Doesn't mean if you're round or square or triangular. Wealthy, poor, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you look like. You actually enjoy the physiological moment of being and the world around you. Does that make sense? That's called loving kindness. And that's not something that's a conceptual base. 
It must come from a physiological um, 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 cognitive change. Otherwise, it's not real. But you see, the difficulty is, if you keep training that way, then it becomes very difficult to, it takes great skill to bring one out of the clinging, the, the habitual clinging, that this uh, neuromodulation is actually the real path to, to freedom, a greater freedom. So, what's the next step? I didn't used to teach this for a long time because it looked self-serving and it seems weird. But I'm going to go back to something because people ask me often around the world, what do I really need to do in meditation, in spiritual awakening, in life development, everything else? And I know this is going to sound, it's going to appear self-serving. I, I hope it doesn't cross. But the Buddha made a statement. Um, one time, it's in, the, it's in the early suttas, which are not made up, by the way. People had great memories in those days. They recited until they had it perfectly memorized. The, you know, when the, the, all the volumes of the Buddha's teaching, which is huge, for 40 years of teaching, those, 40, those volumes, which are huge too, they're all memorized. They've been memorized for 2,500 years. I've met people. I had a teacher, I had a university teacher, who had memorized one of those sets of volumes, the Abhidhamma. Seven volumes of, of, of Pali, perfectly memorized. When it goes to check the accuracy of the written text, where do you think that the, the checking comes from? The memory of monks that actually keep that tradition alive, and it's absolutely perfect. They check each other. Then the written text gets changed. That's been going on for 2,500 years. And I, I had a teacher who, who was like that. They never referred to the book. Seven volumes. They went like this in university class. And then we quote the entire passage. Just like that. And there's people that do all the volumes and it's like this. And they will just read it. Clearly. They're escaping so quickly. I've just gotten to them. I'll give the secret now. Okay. <laughs> Secret essence is to pee. Make sure you pee. And make sure you breathe. So uh, one day, the, the attendant of the Buddha, his nephew, for, for many years, uh, Ananda, uh, said to the Buddha, I've made a great discovery. I've, I've had a revelation. The Buddha said, oh, tell me about your revelation. The teacher's like that, you know. Students got this major revelation. Tell me what it is. And uh, Ananda says, okay, I've made this discovery. 50% of the path of liberation is the teacher, is being with the teacher, studying with the teacher, learning from the teacher, receiving the instructions, and practicing. Who said, oh, very good, Ananda, very good. Always be careful. When a teacher says that, you oh, watch out. When they say, very good, nicely done, you just watch out. You know something's coming. When they, especially, I remember the, the language of the, of the 16th Karma. He'd go, very good, very good. Oh, my God, oh. Very good, very, very, very good. However, so the Buddha said, however, uh, say ye not so, Ananda, this is completely incorrect. The entire path is the teacher, is a relationship with the teacher. Not so Western, is it? Especially today, not Western at all. 
I'm going to tell, after 40 years of studying and teaching since I've been a teenager, I would say, and I'm not self-serving, please don't study with me, okay? Have you got that straight? Don't study with me. Go find another teacher. How's, how's that? Is that? Is that a clear enough statement? Do not. Do not, I warn you. Don't. Did you hear that? I just said don't. <laughs> I didn't say don't pee, I said don't. I mean that. This is not a sales job. But I've come to share with you after 40 years, my 40th anniversary of teaching. Um, it's absolutely correct. And I'll tell you why. Every teacher and every teaching, yoga, Buddhism, it doesn't matter, comes with views. Every teacher teaches based on their experience. Even if they teach classically, you know, they, read, they take a text, yeah? Read from the text, do you think, well, it's accurate. Every teacher will shade the teaching, uh, shape the teaching at, in a way that comes from their level of experience, their level of realization. It doesn't matter whether it's yoga, physical yoga, mental yoga, it's sim physics, math, chemistry, geography, psychotherapy. It simply doesn't matter who your mentor is, is shaping you. Right now, I'm shaping you. I'm, I'm teaching what's called the view. I'm going to teach the conduct. I'm going to teach the meditation. Actually, I just I gave all three already, but I, I have to. It's too fast. Every single one of our friends and mentors shapes us. It turns out through social research that almost most of our learning and our growth and who we are is based on our peers, not our teachers. It's who we hang out with. That's, where, that's how we become shaped. That's now known. It took a lot of statistical data to figure this out. Yeah. Oh yeah, cell phones are great for that. You can track people, you can ask them what they do. Who we study with and who we hang out and how we learn is the invisible views that we carry. If I say to you, when you're meditating, doing meditation retreats, look for the moments of consciousness. Right? Does that sound innocent? Look for the moments. And by the way, make sure that you find the present. Be in the moment. Be now. Correct? Have you heard this? Be here now. Ramdas, be here now. Be in the moment. Be present. Imagine if you practiced that for year after year after year after year. What would happen? You would discover the, the present, and you would see moments. There aren't any. There isn't a past. There isn't a present. There's no future. You can't be mindful about the present. There is no present. Be mindful. It's a mind-conjuring trick. Whatever system you're in is giving you a view, including Buddhist systems. If your teacher has a view, your mentor has a view, to actually, eventually, and they actually hold the lineage by direct experience, and they can teach it, to cut through every single last view to freedom, step by step by step by step. That's a very high place. So when the Buddha said the whole path is a teacher, 
what he means is the whole path of every experience is who your mentors are. Who you're, who's, who's, where's the training? All of us have invisible training. We're imbued with invisible branding and invisible training. If I say the word enlightenment, I can't use the word enlightenment anymore. Why? All of us have been using that word so much, it means, every, it means all kinds of different things, and actually it's such a popular word, it's, it's a waste of time. I can't use the word mindfulness anymore because everybody knows now the word mindfulness. It's so branded, I can't use it technically. People go, oh yeah, I know what that means. If I use the word Vipassana, have you ever heard the word Vipassana? It's a very technical term. If I use the word Vipassana, people go, yeah. Vipassana actually means wisdom attainment. It doesn't mean a technique. But they're going, no, I can't almost use any words anymore. It's a society of branding. We're branded. So we actually have to keep uh, cutting through all conceptual contrivance for a natural presence, a natural position, a natural position that doesn't take any branding or names or language or uh, anything, just absolutely the mind the way it is. And I'm going to prove this to you shortly. Would you like that? Meditationally proving it to you? I can do that. Easy. You won't believe it because when you walk out of here, you're going, oh, I can prove it to you. So, I'm not selling Buddhism and I'm not selling myself. But I'm going to pass this on because it's asked, what's beyond mindfulness? Is what's beyond mindfulness is one has to find teachers, teacher, teachers, teachers, that actually move us further. It's going to sound like Star Trek. Further than man, oops, further than man, man or woman have ever gone before. This is what we need in life. Like going from music teacher to music teacher. Maestro to maestro. Master to master. Some of our teachers have had 150 different gurus. Some have had five. Some have had 10. Some have had 15. Some have had 30, 40 that they've actually really studied under, under, in their life and go from master to master. You know, uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, one of my uh, root teachers, and uh, uh, Antoine Pichet, uh, one of my uh, teachers, Karpa, one of my um, mentors, uh, still go to each other for instructions on the nature of mind. How could that be? Aren't they supposed to be enlightened? They go around continuously for teachings to each other. Transmissions, teachings, instructions. As my uh, teacher, Antoine Pichet, recently said, uh, you know, I love good dharma. Whoever's teaching it, doesn't matter if they have a shaved head or a ponytail. Robe or no robe. Good dharma is great, you know, great dharma is great dharma. They're still learning. Always learning. Always learning. The joy of learning. Passion of learning. Yeah? And challenging themselves. Challenging, challenging, challenging. So that's something I, I wanted to pass on. And the other thing is, Training is not just a meditation or a training in being good. We also need to train in strength. We need to train, we have to become strong. And uh, traditions have a way of teaching strength. So before we try to tackle high, high meditations, uh, have you noticed even in, in, in Hatha Yoga, 
you need to, to gradually, right, build up to where you can hold a pose, correct? Or even make it into a certain pose. In the same way, we need to work up to build strength, mental agility, mental composure, mental strength to work up until we can come to an extraordinary awake mind. Otherwise, what happens is that awakeness slips by. It just goes. You can hear it, it goes by. Hear it, it goes by. It's just like water falling off a leaf. Or off Teflon. So, I hope you don't mind me telling you this, but the path is gradual. There are some sudden moments, but the path is gradual. And if we want to become good craftspeople, good artists, yoga art, awakening art, compassion art, it's vast. It's an ocean, they call it an ocean of vast, beyond belief. It is. The Dharma is beyond belief, how vast it is, how deep it is, what's possible with human consciousness. Then we have to actually change this attitude, which is we actually love to train in uh, the perfecting of wisdom, in the perfecting of all the great <coughs> human qualities. Isn't that lovely? I think that's lovely. And you'll, maybe you'll come back to me and say, but how could we do that in our busy lives? I'm really busy. I have family, I'm going to school, I've got a job. Yes, very busy. This is changing the way we do this, is the mentoring to help people learn to take every single opportunity, every obstacle, every gift, and turn it into a teaching of Dharma, turn it into a yogic practice. That's really how it's done. Every yogin I've ever met who's really accomplished has done that. That's what they've done. They've made every single second of their life not waving rosaries around. Hi, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> Hi, I'm a yogi. No. In an ordinary way, making every single second count for what purpose? Training and what? Compassion and vivid awakeness. Beautiful, I think. What a great gift to human beings. See, I see this as a gift. Training to be a saint is a gift. I don't care about it. I don't care about this. It's just a gift. If you're going to walk around and interact, and everybody relies on you, we do. We rely on each other. Why not be the best gift possible? That's called love. In a Christian sense, that's great love. In a Buddhist sense, that's great compassion. And every one of us is going to be different. Express it. Isn't that great? I'm not sitting here and saying, okay, you're all going to wear these robes. And uh, if you say with me, you're all going to wear these robes and you're going to hold a rosary and you can do the following things. No. Awakeness and compassion manifests in a hundred thousand different ways depending on the display of our conditioning. That's what's fun. Isn't that great? If you see the Dalai Lama and he's going like this, hello, how are you? That doesn't mean we're all going to walk around going, hello, how are you? We will all manifest differently. We have all different kinds of conditioning, all kinds of capabilities. We have all kinds of different emotional sets to our nature, right? Different talents. That's, 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 that's the freedom of the mind. So it's a beautiful thing. To give an outline of the scope of training, this can take a long time. This is why we study. 
years. We have to understand why we're meditating. We have to understand what meditation is for, not just meditate. So now, uh, a part of the question uh, that I've been asked is what's beyond mindfulness? If we look at the original basis of the word mindfulness and how it was used, the word mindfulness uh, was only one of a number of translations for a word in, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Sanskrit, which is shmirti, or in Pali, uh, sati. The word mindfulness is one of many possibilities. In fact, the Buddha used and the teachers use mindfulness in many different ways. But one of the major ways that the word mindfulness is used, asati, is recollection. That's the major way. Learning, memory. This idea that mindfulness is uh, staying in the present is only one small factor of the scope of mindfulness. I'm just telling you classically. Go to a, go to a meditation uh, uh, retreat center in Southeast Asia. Uh, go study it under the tradition of 2,500 years, and they'll all tell you the same thing. This is a very, very pale view. However, we have to train in being present. We need that. Being present, being alert, being here now, which doesn't exist, but training that, is actually a really good fundamental training. But, to actually develop freedom from habit patterns that get in the way to freedom is we're going to have to see what those habit patterns are. Making sense? If there's a food that disturbs us, we can be told about a whole bunch of foods. What in the end is going to convince us that we've discovered a food is interfering to, in our health and our mental, good mental qualities? How do we do that? eat it, but we have to have enough awareness to determine that that is actually a causal factor in the states it produces, correct? That can be tough. That's not so easy. Life is really complicated. When we do, we have habit patterns that interfere or harm in our life and others, we're going to have to identify what those are and we're going to have to do what? Change, correct? The only way we can do that is we have to slow cognition down and develop a clarity and precision that sees what it is and sees the harm or the, uh, the consequences of what that state does. Is that right? Okay. So magically trying to get to a state of calm doesn't liberate. Calm is a supportive condition for liberation. Calm is a supportive condition for unraveling the habit patterns that prevent freedom. Is this making sense? It's logical. Absolutely scientifically logical, and it's traditional. I'm teaching traditional, I'm teaching scientifically. Habit patterns are what in the way good meditative ability is not. You can meditate for a million years and never become liberated. The habit patterns are what's in the way. Clear the habit patterns into a joyful, uh, ethical, open, compassionate nature, and meditation flows like a beautiful bubbling brook. Isn't that amazing? <coughs> Let me give you an example, because I was asked to speak about the nervous system and meditation. 
right? And I think some of you have pretty good theory in this from the, from the uh, yoga tradition. If you uh, uh, straighten the nadis, you all know nadis? You straighten nadis, and the winds, the prana moves through, through clearly, which is what hatha yoga does. S pulls out the nadis, straightens, opens up the nervous system, gets the lymphatic system to move, and so on. You'll feel good, correct? Sometimes? But why does it change? So we could do this for the rest of our lives. We feel good, we can meditate. And then something disturbs it. Why? Because the, car, the habit patterns are actually stored in the nadis. It's the same as if you uh, use softwood in a fireplace and you don't burn a high enough temperature. Do you know what happens to a, a stovepipe? It develops creosote, build up tar. And the tar, have you been in a cabin where this happened? Maybe not. And the tar builds up in the stovepipe because it's cool. And that, that tar, that creosote, can catch on fire. If you've ever been in a small cabin, or even a house, where the creosote caught on fire, it's quite an amazing experience. The stove shakes, it turns cherry red, and you have the posse burning the entire house down. It's quite something. It actually makes a noise. I've had this happen. And you're like, oh my God, what to do? You have to close down the air. Every time we breathe we breathe through our nadis. 72,000, which was the tradition in the Hatha Yoga tradition? 72,000. 72,000, that's a lot, right? That's all, all it means is a lot. 72,000 nadis, internal, internal fine nerves that carry breath, carry sensation. If they're gummed up with habit patterns, so we think of them as gummed up with something else. They're gummed up with conceptual habit patterns of traces. So we can blow the wind through there, but if they're not purified, the, the same habit patterns just come back in different forms. Back, 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 back. So you see, the path is purification. Traditionally, up until full Buddhahood, full, complete freedom, we purify. And the first thing we need to purify is uh, not, not just our body, but we need to purify our habit patterns that cause harm to ourselves and other people. Otherwise, we actually don't really move anywhere. We just keep moving the dice around, or sorry, not the dice, the checkerboard, the chessboard pieces, on the, on the chessboard, thinking that something's happening. We do need to train in generosity. We need to train in ethics. We need to train in not doing harm. We need to train in energy energy yoga, so we have lots of energy. We need to train in patience, mountains of patience, not stupid patience. Patience means the ability to carry out what you set to do, not sit there where someone's driving over you with a truck. That's not patience. That's not patience. That's silly. Patience means being able to carry out what you set out to do. Thoroughly. Okay. We need lots of that. We need lots of energy. And we need a concentrated mind. So it's clear, it's radiant, and it feels good. We need to train all these. Otherwise, the wisdom quality of the mind doesn't come through. Or it comes through for short little bits, and it slips away. Short little experiences slips away. I bet almost all of you in the room, probably all of you, have experienced the wisdom, the natural wisdom mind, and it slipped through. 
you have. Actually, it happens thousands of times a day. It slips through. It's that fast. Imagine if enlightenment, just I want you to imagine the possibility that you glimpse, not you, mind glimpses liberation and it slips through. And you don't want what to do with it because the training isn't there. So the, the habit patterns by tradition are locked, if you wish, not forever, but they're stuck in the pipes of our own being. Purifying is not just physical purifying, not just breath work. We actually have to change our habit patterns, which erodes this creosote within our nadis. Does this make sense? Otherwise, it keeps coming back. So it is like the old saying, I think I've got this right, in, in uh, Christianity. Sin all week, confess on Sunday, and then sin all the, the next week. What happens? Nothing changes. Make a confession, and then you keep doing the same thing. Nothing happens. So Einstein had a great line, which is, if we keep doing the same thing and it doesn't work, it's a definition of insanity. So causality is the key, and all wisdom training starts at causality. We have to unravel the habit patterns that get in the way of what? Generosity, clarity, loving kindness, compassion, openness, spaciousness, the ability to see possibility, the ability to actually rise above the constraints of branding, habit patterns, views. Have you, are you stuffed of views? You're probably going to be stuffed of views from me. This guy's filling me with views. We have to start somewhere. We start with views, then we take them all away. The entire path is better views, more views, finer views, then we take them all away. Can you stand on no view? The technical word for liberation in the Pali language of the Abhidhamma, of the insight manuals of the insight tradition, is lokutara. Lokutara. That's the technical word for liberation, technical word for transcendent experience. It means beyond all position, beyond all world, beyond all standing. No position. Nothing that you can hang on to. Not a shred, which is freedom. How to do that? How to gain stability in that? The habit patterns are in the way. Even the habit pattern is, Lama Mark, could you give us the essential secret to the nature of the, of, of the mind? Yes, here it is. Okay, great. The habit patterns are what stops it from sticking. Habit patterns are what stops the uh, glow of the uh, uh, inborn nature from being there all the time. It's habit patterns and those traces that, that uh, lead to having a good meditative session and then a week of no good meditative sessions. It's the state of, of a wonderful glow of the mind and the body, and then an hour or two or three days or the next day going, what's wrong? What happened? Was it the bagel? Was it the lox? Was it the cream cheese? I know. It was, oh, I know. It was the onions. I can't eat onions. Oh, that's right. Can you imagine going through life like that? What was it? And then someone, of course, there's always a person around the corner going, you know it's the onions. The other person goes, you know you're not supposed to eat bagels because it's got gluten. You know you're not supposed to do this. Isn't that right? Is, is this nature the way it is right now? 
If you're, uh, go have carrot juice, you'll be great. I went to a city where I was asked to teach uh, teachings of liberation and meditation, and I found that most of the young people that I was teaching were on an alfalfa diet. And I said, why are you on alfalfa? Well, this person told us that alfalfa diet will purify us. Okay. Do you feel purified? Well, I think I feel better. <laughs> Do you know you feel better? But they said if we eat alfalfas, alfalfa sprouts, and just eat alfalfa sprouts, it is the royal road to freedom. So how many times have you been told this in your life? Alfalfa sprouts, carrots, no meat, more meat, vegetarian, no vegetarian, no sex, yes, have sex, make lots of love, don't make much, once a week, once every day, if you get to this age, right, it's once a week, you'll die. If you're a teenager, yes, three times a day, you, you'll survive, right? How many? I mean, I met a fellow who wanted to come study with me. He was in his pajamas. Bless his heart when he met me. He was in his pajamas. And I said, uh, after supper, he wanted to come for supper. He's a lovely, lovely fellow. Uh, he was in his early 20s. Maybe he's only 19. And I said, uh, so would you like to help with the dishes? He says, oh, no, I can't. Why not? I have to go to bed. It was like 8 o'clock at night. Bed. Oh, yeah, that's right, you're wear, you always wear your pajamas every day, so you're always ready to go to bed. He said, no, no. I, I said, where did you get this? I, what time do you wake up? I wake up around um, eight hours. Uh, I wake up around eight or, or, or um, seven in the morning. Okay. Where did you get this? I read it on the, do- on the internet from Dr. So-and-so. And therefore, it's true, I said. He said, Yes. So now you know that you need, he said, like 12, I need 12 hours of sleep a day, every day. I said, really? Absolutely. You see, and he's already wearing his pajamas all day long, ready for this. What was the first thing I did as a teacher, a lama? What is the first thing a lama does and teaches this young man to do? What do you think? What? I took him out shopping, and we went shopping for his first pair of pants. Yeah, and we went, we spent about four or five days going to all the shops in the city until we went to the most expensive shop, and he actually, for the first time in his life, had a pair of tailored pants. He went, wow, I look good, I feel great. And that was the end of pajamas. <laughs> Do you see my point in this? Probably not. It's the habit patterns, not the meditation. The meditation comes after it's the habit patterns that, that screw around with the way we see reality. I must wear pajamas. Where did he learn to wear pajamas all day? And what is he psychologically holding because of that? Do you follow? That's the first thing, not sticking him in a meditation retreat. I can't wash the dishes. Listen to this. I can't wash the dishes because I have to go to sleep. This is a teaching of awakeness. I'm not asking him to stay up all night. Something as simple as, could you be generous to help out the person do the dishes? Do you see? That's in the way. This is what we're missing in our modern society. Actually, what we're missing is the causal link between the openness, spaciousness, loving kindness, sustainability, sustained naturalness, and a lack of understanding of causality that actually it's our habit patterns. But life goes so quickly by, we can't actually see the causality of our conceptual states, our habit patterns, and how they form a life. And we have so many views now 
carrot juice, alfalfa sprouts, practice uh, asanga yoga, practice hot yoga, uh, I don't know all the names, right? Uh, practice this yoga, that yoga, this meditation, practice Buddhist meditation, practice tantra. How many, how many pieces of advice have you had? Tons, right? Tons. All day long. What do you have to do? Have you ever seen the movie Ghostbusters? What, is it, what did they say? What was it? What was it? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. So in, in the Buddhist tradition, who are you going to call? The mentor. You have, to, you have to find a mentor and follow a path. And if you find a good mentor, follow the path and stick to it. It's like, it's like moving around from music teacher to music teacher because the music teacher says, well, you know, I need you to practice four hours. You go, I want to practice three. I'm going to find a teacher that tells me I only need to practice three. When you find three, I'd like to find a teacher that tells me that I only need to practice two and a half hours a day. Do you see? Always fiddling around. But actually, once a path is laid out, there's a genuine lineage, a real, true, genuine lineage of path. Stick to it. You find a teacher that you go... This is something important. You test it out. Try it out. Go the distance. It's important. That's my, that's my, that to me is the, if I get asked a question, what's beyond mindfulness? That sums everything up. Because actually it's the habit, no matter what I teach in terms of yogic technique, and I can tell you what's not beyond mindfulness. Because right? we're going to do that this is beautiful. People teaching mindfulness, great training. Great training. I have oh, more and more people practice a training in mindfulness. Terrific. But it's also conceptual to contrivance. It's, it's, it's being oversold. Neurophysiologists who've actually promoted it are now coming back online and in books and in journals saying, uh-oh, watch it. We've never promised all this stuff. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even hold up to the data. Be careful. Techniques... Be careful of techniques. Liberation goes beyond all techniques. So I have to clear out the habit patterns. Spontaneous clarity does not come from a technique. It comes from a blessing of something that can't be put into words. It really can't. And it must be physiologically based, it must be cognitively based, it must be a wholesale change in your being. Only when those habit patterns are clear enough does it actually stick. So here's this. What's beyond mindfulness? Awakeness. If one is, come on in, If one is present, now I'm going to come to the yoga part. Okay? Well, actually, it's all yoga. Now we come to meditation. You've come to the, the inner part now. Would you like to practice some yoga? Buddhist yoga? If you're in the present, what about the past and the future? 
What's wrong with the past and future? Is there anything wrong with the past and future? Yeah. And now just reflect on this. Can you be in the moment? Can you be in the moment? Do you know that what I just said to you is <coughs> almost a second after I said it, and yet the mind makes it present? Do you know that? Do you know that right now you're looking at a human being and you're only seeing a postage stamp size of what's here? And the entire image and the sound and everything I say is made up in your mind. There is no talk. There's no talk and there's no llama talking. It's all, where is it made up? Where is the experience happening? Where is the experiencing happening right now? In your mind, yes? Is that correct? Where does all experience happen? Everything. Does it happen out there? Or is it actually experienced in your mind? What's the possibility? Where does experience actually happen? Am I your experience? Or is the experience actually happening in your mind? What would you say? Uh, shall we do a little bit of uh, insight meditation? Without disturbing another person in terms of something inappropriate, if you know what I mean. Close your eyes and reach out to the person beside you uh, with, your, with your index finger, because it's extremely sensitive. It can go down to about almost a micron. And I want you to tell me what it is that you touch. Just touch their arm. Uh, reach out with your eyes closed, touch their arm, skin, clothing, I don't care what it is. I want you to tell me what it is that you have touched. That's it. Don't need any more. You can be here for hours, doesn't matter. What? Just go around the room. Don't think of right or wrong. This is not an exam. Although, Christine has the scorecard. <laughs> and, and she'll post it later. What did you touch? Let's let's hear it. Sock. Sock? Okay. Skin. Anybody else? Skin. Skin. Yeah. Any other 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 things? Elbow. Pardon? Elbow. These are all good answers. Yes. You've all passed. Any any others? I felt sensation. Pardon? I felt the sensation on my finger Does that mean that you didn't touch the person? I Did you, did you, or this is like a, a criminal court. <laughs> did you, did you, or didn't you touch the person? I want to know a, sim a simple answer. This is meditation. Hmm? I touched two people. You touched two people. In the two people, did you touch a person or did you touch sensation? Did you have a sensation or did you touch a person? What do you think, oh wise people? When you touch someone, did you touch a person? Did you touch a sock? Or did you have a sensation? Which is it? What's, what is the real answer? Can you touch a person? Try it again. Tell me if you can touch a person. Did you touch the whole person? What do you know about that person when you touch them? Tell me what you know as a percentage of that person. Would you say 1%? 
would you say 0.000000001% of the entire of the person? What do you think? I know You know, but let's 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 go by direct experience. What is the what is the experience? And where does that experience happen for you? In your fingertip. Do all of you know your physiology, neurophysiology? It doesn't happen in your fingertip. Where does the experience actually happen? Right. Is the experience the same as the sensation? And for most of you, it wasn't, because some of you said sock. Some of you said skin. You don't, how do you know it's a piece of skin? You have to have a previous uh, knowledge in there that you're putting on the sensation. How about what you're looking at right now? Are you seeing anything or are you constructing an experience? We're constructing experience. How do we construct experiences? We construct experiences based on previous habit patterns. Genetic, epigenetic, societal, peer learning, things you learn in school, like even something like this. Do you remember this as a, as, a, as a child? Elbow. <laughs> Say elbow. No, no, no. Not cap. Elbow. You know when you call your child and you say to a, to a man, dog. And the parents go, not dog, man. Remember that? And you go up to a, go up to a, a woman and you say, mama. And they go, the parents go, no, no, not mama. Woman. <laughs> it's not your mother. It's a woman. So over time we build up what? names. And those names take on reality. Do you know anything about the person next to you? Do you know anything about your spouse? Have you ever had that experience? Not a thing. Not a bloody clue. Have you ever had that experience? If you're honest, I don't know anything about them. Who are they? Wake up in the morning or go to bed. I don't know who this person is. They're a monster. They're, usually it's because they're a monster. Or they do something, you go, I, I, actually, I don't know that person. You're in a social, you know, you're in a party. I, I don't know who they are. Never seen them before. It's true because you actually, we know, if you were to take the total sum of, uh, of the human uh, cells, which are 5% of the body, and then we were to actually take the rest, 95% of a human being is uh, parasites, viruses, bacteria, and other microscopic creatures, what do we know about the human being we're looking at? Nothing. And yet we feel we do. What do we know about the most essential thing that happens to us every moment of our day? Which is what? What's happening to us every single moment, day and night? Experience. We're having millions of moments of experience that are given names. They're given conceptual contrivance based on habit patterns. Make sense? Here's what goes beyond mindfulness. Not the present, not observation. What's the nature of all experience? That's the key. That takes mentorship. It takes really working with a guide because it's the last thing we want to look at. We look at objects of the mind, but we never ask what the mind is. We look at objects of awareness, but we won't look at the nature of awareness long enough 
to find out what the genuine heart essence, the kandronitik, the essence of the dakini, what is the very heart essence of something that we have closer than our hands and our face that we live with, which is actually all we really have. Isn't that extraordinary? What's beyond mindfulness? What is awakeness? Awakeness is knowing the thing that we actually carry with us. Day and night shapes everything. Awareness. Mind. This is the key. The key to all Buddhist yoga, the essence of all Buddhist yoga is this one central question. What's the nature of mind? Because mind is every, every tiny bit of experience. Anybody have a coffee today? Good. What kind of coffee did you have? Give me the brand. Espresso? Anybody else? I had Steel Wheel Guji Ethiopian today. Very nice. Right? That doesn't tell us anything at all. It's meaningless. It is a completely meaningless statement. Why? It's a name. It has nothing to do with the experience. Does it make sense? The genuine experience. So reach out again and tell me what the experience was of touching another person. The real experience. Not the person. The experience. Okay? Quick. What was it? The experience. Exactly. Warm. What else? Soft. Now we're getting to Hard. Mushy. Uh, a resilient something. Resilient something. Exactly. A resilient... But do you know what that something is? No. Can you dwell in that quality of, I don't have a clue. I don't have words for it. You don't have words for it. Now we're talking. No words. But we can use words. The question is, do we know that words actually aren't the experience? Let's use the word mind. Does everybody in this, in this room have a mind? Put your hand up if you have a mind. You're always thinking, just kind of cut some tricky question, right? Do you have a mind and do you experience mind right now? Yes? Yeah. What is it? Can you tell me exactly what it is? You'll get a Nobel Prize. What is it? Sir, what is it? Uh, exactly. Uh, 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 uh. When was the last, who was the last person you met that went into retreat for a week or two weeks or spent, just as we do in university or even a course in high school, and spent all that time looking at what? What is the nature of this experience? Why? It's what we are. Uh, 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 uh. What happens when your teacher says to you, come on, what is that experience? Uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh. Do you know how many months training required to actually get the first word out? And you're not lying because you read it in a text. Teacher goes, text, shut up, go back to work. It's resplendent like the full rising moon. Shut up, you read that in the text last week. Back to work. <laughs> That's when they take the stick out. You know the Zen stick? And they go, whack! What was that like? It hurts! Exactly, we're getting better. It's close. Yeah, good. Okay, now you're being honest. Oh, the stick hit me and I'm 
Philip Bliss. Oh, shut up. Get back to work. Go meditate. This is the nub. You know nub? This is the essence. All Buddhist meditation is going to one point. The thing that gets us is the nature of our mind. We don't know our mind. We don't even know what experience it. We don't know what we're And yet we think we do. It's closer than our hands and our face. We live with it day and night, and we simply haven't taken the time to investigate it. It turns out it takes training, like what you're doing in yoga is a beautiful training ground to develop the suppleness, the openness, the clarity. The, uh, it takes clear mind. It takes a loving kindness. It takes being able to direct that mind to look through all the habit patterns. And then we have to look through the calm. It's the worst. The calm is like a veil, thick, with bliss and openness and love. You just want to hug everybody. You want to go out, you know, a good, a good dose of meditation is you want to go out and hug everybody on the street. Give them a kiss and say, I love you and I love the whole universe. But you'll never look at the experience of that. You have an experience of love, but don't know what the nature of that love is. Have an experience of sadness, but don't know the nature of the sadness. We don't care whether you're anxious or not. We want to know what the nature of experience is. We don't care whether you're hot or cold or white or black or Asian or not. Couldn't care less. Whether you're meditating in your head, meditating in your bum, doesn't matter. What is the nature of awareness that contains all experience? What's the nature of coffee? What's the nature of tea? What is it? Experience is all made up in the mind. I didn't have Ethiopian Guji this morning, even it was called that. I had an experience that was indescribable, constructed in the mind. Not right or wrong, but constructed in the mind. Just like you're having this experience, and I'm having this experience with you right now, where is it happening? In the mind. We're having 40, 40 different experiences in this room right now. All different. You'll all come away saying, uh, that's what Lama Mark said. No, I didn't hear that. No, that's, no, that's what, I'm sure that's what he said. I didn't have that. So the Buddha's path is a training, which is the unraveling of the nature of all experience because that's actually what we have. Our awareness is unborn night and day. It doesn't vanish. I'm not talking about ordinary awareness. I'm talking about the awareness that allows us to drive down the 401 holding a cell phone, listening to the radio, talking to your child, and fantasizing at the same time, and you survive two or three miles of driving down the highway in rush hour traffic and simply don't know how that happened. Now that's awareness. What is that awareness? What's the awareness that allows one to wake up in the middle of the night because you smell, smell smoke? That keeps us alive. What is that awareness? That awareness is with us every moment, whether we're distracted, whether we're concentrated, whether we're meditating or not meditating. That's what we have to find. And we have to get to know it. We have to get to see it. We have to become familiar with it. Not just once, thousands of times, so we become that. That's our nature. That's our nature.
That's the question. What? Not what is our self? What's not our not self? We want to know what is this core nature of all experience of awareness. And it turns out, because great masters have all said the same thing in different words, it's vivid, it's bright, it's freedom, it is vast as the cosmos, it's unending, it doesn't get born, it doesn't die, it's vivid, it's primordial, it's awake, it's self but not self, it's unobstructed, it's clarity itself, it's universal love, it's universal compassion, it's a great gift to all sentient beings, no matter what tradition it comes from. Where is it, though? Where is it? There's no other place it could be but mind, because that's all we have. That's the logical conclusion. That's what we call Buddhist yoga at the highest level. So we train at all kinds of stages and levels to become accustomed to even that possibility. Because why don't we want to do that? The habit pattern is that if we have an object that we like, that's enough. Is it making sense logically? If I only have an object that I like that's enough to make me feel happy, that's enough. That's called an addict. But to come out of that, we're going to have to find out what's the nature of all experience, no matter what it is. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. That's Buddha yoga. That's called reality. What is actually real? Not, not happy. Real. Real. And that takes training. And that takes guidance. Simply takes guidance. I love it. I'm still training. I just love the depth of training. I just absolutely love how deep this is. Just absolutely revel in the scope, the depths of what's possible uh, of the human mind to probe the human mind and uh, the nature of phenomena, all beings, everything. One time uh, years ago, at the end of an emptiness retreat, uh, 1990 something, in Ireland, uh, my uh, beloved teacher said to me, That's enough, really strong. When are you going to stop? meditating on your mind, the nature of mind, and meditate on all sentient creatures' mind and what that is. All minds. Not your mind. Not enough of that. All minds. All minds. What's the nature of all minds? Cows, crickets, dogs, pigs, microbes. The nature of minds of all sentience. What is it? What's its nature? What do we normally do? I've got a few minutes. Ah, good. Exactly six minutes left. What do we normally spend our days doing? Where's the problem? We look at ourselves. We try to actually figure ourselves by looking at ourselves that we're not ourselves. We're way vaster than anything called Mark Weber, or Ralph, or Bob, or Patricia, or, or Henrietta. It's so vast what a self is. If we keep referencing self, then that's what we see as a reflection of the concepts we have. The goal of the teacher is to keep taking the student, the practitioner, further and further opening 
this experience of being alive, and so on. That's all. Through yogas, various yogas, mental yogas, physical yogas, mind yogas, tailored to the individual needs, not, not just a million people. What do you need? Well, remember the story of the person that showed up in the pajamas. What did he need? How to break through the concept of wearing pajamas all day to wearing a pair of pants and actually looking like a normal person for the first time in his life, not a, not a, not a child who's walking around his bedroom. Did you follow? What do we have like that in us? All llamas, if they're a llama, are going to have to drop the idea that they're a llama. All gurus are going to actually have to rise above being a guru. All teachers are going to have to drop being teachers, but use teachers skillfully. A llama uses the word uh, and the position skillfully. What are we? Total, utter mind potential. Neither this nor that. Open, unobstructed, clear, radiant, compassionate, vivid. That's our nature. That's our real nature. Now, I think it's said on the poster that there's time for questions. <laughs> Five minutes. <clears throat> yes. Um, living in the, the busy moment. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel that being compassionate and doing the thing that I feel is right yes. goes against uh, the budget, yeah. against the yeah. bottom line. Yeah. And I, I feel very alone in, in that struggle at in the modern world. That's where we need uh, teachers, because we often can't see, we just can't see what we don't know. Uh, my uh, beloved root teacher, Namjimpsa, said there's uh, three definitions of a student. Shouldn't, can't, and won't. That's the mantra of a student, all day long. Can't, shouldn't, won't. How would you like to go to Africa? Can't, don't have the money. How would you like to go on the street? Can't, shouldn't. Uh, how would you like to have... Um, no conceptual contrivances in the nap. Oh, I can't do that. How about, would you like to all become uh, fully awakened beings? I can't. I don't believe in that. So he said that's the hallmark of a student. When a student changes, it's, I can, I will, and I damn it, I'm going to do it. Under all, anything. So we actually need a community of good beings and teachers that can actually help us step by step like the, like the man with the pajamas. He said, I have to wear pajamas. That's what I wear. I said, no, you don't. You can wear pants. No, I wear, I like, I wear pajamas. <laughs> How many of those do we do? I wear Velcro. I wear spandex. I can only do yoga in my spandex. Or my lycra, right? I can only do yoga in the following way. I can only meditate under these conditions. My teacher had us meditating under all conditions. The worst conditions. You want to go to a peaceful retreat? He always made it, not always, often very unpleasant. Why? Can you meditate here? Can you meditate there? By the way, you're going to have your 100,000 uh, mantras done by, by tonight and under the most difficult circumstances. He, he, told, he showed me that actually I could rise above it when I said I can't. Sir, I've only got seven hours. Good. Start and get it finished. Then I have to stay up all night. That's right. I did. Just like the guy with pajamas. You can manifest infinite generosity. Total generosity. I'm not talking about stupid generosity. 
infinite generosity, and you can be as rich as you want, but you may not be wealthy. That's something else, and you don't necessarily have to have that. The point is, that question is because of habit patterns. You just need someone to show you that actually uh, you, you could be way beyond that. And, it's, and, and, and actually having no money or not having the budget has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Zero. Zero, not a shred. I've met people in the East who have absolutely nothing. And they're the most generous, open, loving gifts to mankind. And they have not, they don't even know where their next food is going to come from. That's often why I like taking uh, people to India, where I go to meet some of my teachers, meeting people like that. Not a thing to their name, and they are an open, loving kind. They'll give you everything. They'll feed you their best food. I've had that. Walk in, please, let me serve you food. They have nothing but some fresh peas, and they'll give you all their peas. Do they think about budget? No. They don't even think about an energy budget. And they're not stupid. They're very bright, very intelligent, and very well studied, and very well trained. Any other questions? Oops. I've got uh, one minute. I think they call that 60 seconds. So in two hours, I've tried to give you um, a few things listed on the poster, but uh, give you, perhaps, uh, some of you have never heard this, perhaps you've heard this before. Um, perhaps just to remind people that there is a vast ocean of a realization out there. But it's encountering uh, beings, teachers, uh, that can teach that like you've never encountered before. That's what I do. Even, even now, after 40 years, I encounter beings that go, holy goodness, holy goodness, is that an extraordinary mind and an extraordinary place of accomplishment. I want that. I once said that to my teacher. He, he was teaching a class. He turned to me in the car and said, so, okay? I said, sir, I want what you got. And, I'm gonna, and he said, you're going to get it. It wasn't like, you're going to get it, but yes, you're going to get it. And I was absolutely firm. I want that. I want that quality. I want that awakeness. I want all those qualities. And that's what we do with mentors, teachers. I want to play the clarinet that way. I want to, I want to be a gardener of that caliber. I want to be a yoga teacher of that caliber. I want to be able to be a, um, um, uh, um, a caregiver of that caliber. Did you follow I would love to be a mother that way. I'd like to be a father that way. I would like to be, wow, look at the generosity of that being. I could do that. So we all need that as adults, as permission. We need to have the door open where someone goes, you can, this is how it's done, and you will, and go for it. If you can't, we need to build strength. We need to build capacity. Does it make sense? Capacity. And then when the words come out, you hear it, you go, of course I can do that, I will. We need to be challenged. Further and further and further. As gifts, as, as gifts of, of, of great gifts to uh, other beings. 
Everybody in this room is a magnificent, I really mean this, this is how I feel. Should I tell you my feelings? No seconds left. Should I tell you my feelings? You're, I really, how do I feel? Absolutely awake and magnificent. There's not one person in this room whose mind is not uh, in its uh, quality of, of, paying, of being here. Absolutely brilliant, resplendent, magnificent, clear, open, spacious. That's actually the way you are. And I, t- I share this with you. I've never hardly done this until this year. That's what I experience. So it kind of it kind of go. Why? Why wouldn't you? You're asking me how you can. I'm going. It's already there. It's all there. You couldn't actually listen to this talk without it being there. If I was in the East, I would say to all of you as a traditional Tibetan Lama, the very fact you're listening to a Dharma talk means you have extraordinary merit. You have extraordinary capacity to even hear this. There's thousands of people out there on the street who who come in here, listen and say, that's garbage, and walk out. It's nonsense. Just give me a better object, and I'll be happy. Where's the next Gucci bag? Where's the next car to make me happy? Where are we going to go for supper? They say, you're crazy. I say, no, who, who, who was crazy? And yet all of you looking at me, all of you there, what do I experience? I experience extremely bright, capable, I don't care what you're, whether you're suffering or confused or hurt inside, I don't care. But your minds are absolutely glorious. So I've had a great time, thank you. No, I mean that. You're, you're, you're wonderful people, and may you, uh, may you awaken speedily. May you find the paths, whatever you will, May you find uh, teachers, may you find uh, uh, the Dharma and whatever teaching that is. Uh, May you find places of retreat, may you find the uh, capacity to become an awake, uh, compassionate gift uh, for uh, all the beings that we're connected with. So that is my my great wish. So thank you for uh, inviting, thank you, Christine, for inviting, and uh, thank you for listening to my a mouth flap back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Saying some words, and, and uh, maybe they have a little tiny, tiny bit of um, some meaning uh, for you. Uh, so that is my sincere wish. May all beings um, attain to the stability of the uh, naturally awake state, which is the union of compassion and uh, wisdom as a great gift for all sentient beings. Sarmangalam, Sarmangalam. Sarah Good. Vinny. <laughs>